It's time for Nordic on Tap. Welcome to our podcast featuring interviews, music, folk tales, and lots of hygge, all with a Nordic flavor. I'm your host, Eric Stavney. Welcome to podcast number 19, where we get back to reading a folktale. But before I start, I want to alert you to the Nordic on Tap website at nordicontap, all one word, dot com, where you can listen to any episode, but also find links and photographs that I've collected about those I'm interviewing or where to find folktales that I read on the show. I'll remind you again after we're done. So, one of my favorite stories is one from the Brothers Grimm in Germany, who published it in their Kinder und Hausmärchen book, Children's and Household Tales, in 1812. It's called The Brave Little Tailor. I first read it in a book that called the story Seven at One Blow, and you'll see why that is. Like all good stories, they get around, they migrate to different countries and cultures, being told and retold, picking up the flavor of the local culture they pass through. The version I'd like to present in this episode was translated to English from the Danish by a librarian, Jens Christian Bay, and published as Danish Fairy and Folktales in 1899. This version is a bit different from the Brothers Grimm version. I think lighter and more fun. It stars the plucky tailor who, in spite of himself, has the courage to face what scares him, seeing himself as nobler and greater than perhaps he really is. Folklorists would call the tailor an anti-hero. Anti-heroes are unconventional main characters, protagonists, who lack traditional heroic characteristics like extreme bravery in the face of danger. In fact, they're often, shall we say, unqualified, incompetent, and inept. Don Quixote, the Wandering Knight, was an anti-hero too. But that doesn't make anti-heroes like Quixote or this particular tailor any less likable. Jens Christian Bay was born in Denmark in Rødkjøping and emigrated to the United States in 1892. He was, as we said, a librarian. My friends, Nan, Kevin, and Pam, who are librarians, would be quick to tell you that their charge is to collect and keep tales, books, music, recordings, artifacts that that characterize our culture. So it's not surprising that Jens Christian Bay collected folktales. So we have Jens Bay to thank for this version of The Brave Little Tailor, called in Danish Den Topreskreder, literally The Brave Tailor. But here, Bay calls it Brave Against His Will. I'm reading from a reproduction of Bay's book, which is now in the public domain. It's called Danish Folk Tales from the Danish of Grundtvig Christiansen Bondesson and Buddha, translated by Jens Christian Bay. It's his name that you would use to look it up. I'll put a link to this title on the nordicontap.com website, as well as a few of the wonderful illustrations that have been used in books about this story. It's a long tale, so buckle in. Here we go. Brave Against His Will On his table in a poorly furnished room, a little tailor was sitting. He sewed busily while the flies buzzed about the window panes 
and the beautiful sunlight gleamed bright and pleasant on the blooming elder bushes and the rosy red shining cherries outside the house. Under the eaves, numerous sparrows were twittering cheerily. The door was opened, and in came our tailor's friend, the blacksmith, dressed in his best coat and with a knotty stick in his hand. "'Do you sit there yet?' he said. "'Do you not intend to visit the fair like other good people?' "'I don't care to go,' returned the tailor, in his faint, shrill voice. "'Well, how about your wife?' asked the blacksmith again. "'She went away more than two hours ago,' answered he. "'Come, come, that beats all,' cried his friend. "'Do you care so little for your wife that you let her trudge to the fair alone?' On such a day as this, when the roads are filled with vagabonds and robbers? My wife is in good hands, declared the tailor, for our wealthy neighbor Mods promised to take care of her, and, and in the meantime you are forced to prick with your needle this whole splendid summer day. A tailor must attend to his duties, said the shriveled little fellow, looking helplessly into the blacksmith's large face with the blinking eyes and the curly beard. When I was a boy, I dreamed of becoming a great warrior. I was to win a golden helmet and ride on a stately steed, followed by a hundred brave men. Nothing ever came of it. Why should you not yet live to see your dream realized? pursued his friend, and nodded smilingly at him. Well, I know one thing, cried the tailor, straightening himself and striking his breast. I possess a lion's courage and the force of a bear. Blood cannot frighten me. How often have I pricked my fingers with a needle without feeling either fear or pain? And oh, how I yet dream. Often I slay dragons and serpents and other fearful beasts, the very names of which would frighten you. Were I in your place, answered the blacksmith, I would at once throw these rags aside and jump from the table, go into the wide world, seek those great monsters you spoke of, and slay them. Slay them! No, no, replied the little man. I cannot. At present I own not a single penny, and without money you can do nothing. I will aid you, returned the blacksmith. Five dollars are all that I have, but I will share them with you, my friend. Two dollars and fifty cents will reach far in a thrifty man's hand. Come and take them. My wife will feel very lonely, objected the tailor. Your wife? Mods and I will take care of her while you are gone, asserted his friend. Will you surely? asked the ambitious young man. I promise you solemnly, cried the animated blacksmith. Think of the day when you return with a golden helmet and followed by a hundred great warriors. Yes, yes, shouted the tailor, slapping the table with his hand and sweeping the goods he had at work with into a corner. When I strike, I strike hard. He lifted his hand and looked at it. When it struck the table, seven flies had been killed, and their dead bodies stuck to his palm. One, two, three, four, five, seven of them, said he, looking sternly at his friend. Seven with one blow. Such is the beginning. What do you think of that? Remarkable, answered the blacksmith. Remarkable indeed. Make a belt and, and sew on it with red worsted wool. Seven with one blow. This will tell everyone what a great man you are, and that is very important. I will follow your advice, returned the little tailor. 
For now, I am determined. In the afternoon, he set out to win all that he had dreamed of. A short distance from home, he met his wife and wealthy Mads, who returned from the market laughing and talking about the fine day which had been passed so pleasantly. Oh, let her be glad and happy, thought the good little tailor as they passed without seeing him. When I return, she will be still more delighted. He walked on, the hopeful and trustful little person that he was. At the fair he met an old invalid soldier who had lost both of his arms in war, for which reason he had no more use for his weapons. The tailor bought his sword. It was rusty and hacked, but one dollar was a low price, and he was satisfied. Everyone gave him shelter and food when he needed for the sake of the words which he had sewed on his belt. But when he inquired about dragons and serpents, they shook their heads. No such monsters were living in this part of the world. At length he began to doubt the many descriptions which he had read about these beings and hesitated to believe the frightful havoc which they were said to have made. Soon he heard, however, that in a country called Franconia there were many of these marvelous animals. As soon as one of them had been killed, another appeared, and they spared neither kings nor emperors. So this was a great country for the tailor, who went there without delay. One evening he lay down to sleep in a large forest, and when he awoke the next morning he found two strangers in beautiful clothes mm. staring at him. They read the inscription on his belt, and although unacquainted with the language, succeeded in interpreting the meaning of the words. Thinking of seven men, and not of seven flies, they approached the mighty hero, bowing and scraping, asking him to accompany them to the king, and be enlisted in the royal bodyguard. The king received the tailor well. "'My people are a nation of heroes,' said he. "'We know how to value bravery.' Soon you will have occasion to show your proficiency and your strength. The tailor replied that he was pleased to hear this, and that his greatest desire was to kill dragons and serpents. Well, in that case, said the king, you may make a beginning by going into the forest behind the palace. Two fearful giants dwell there, and none of my heroes are as yet able to slay them. They devour all our crops, and eventually they'll lay waste to the whole country. If you can slay them, I will give you a hundred pieces of gold. The little man's heart swelled within him. He beat his rusty old sword and declared that even if there were seven giants, he would kill them as easily as if they were seven flies. He was connected to the pantry and received a large parcel containing ten Bad whole picture. slices of bread and butter. The queen had herself prepared them, and there were five with collared beef and five with sweet milk cheese. Thus equipped, the tailor departed. When he had walked about in the forest a couple of hours without noticing even a trace of the giants, he determined to open the package and taste the dainty bread and butter. He had hardly swallowed the first bite before the leaves began to rattle, and in the next moment two huge men, fearful to look at, stood before him. They were so tall that if they had been standing on the stone stair in front of the tailor's hut, it would have been an easy matter for them to look down into the chimney top. Now his heart sank within him and he dropped his bread and butter. 
I wish to God, thought he, that I had stayed among my needles and rags. Now I am a lost man. So he was, indeed. The one giant seized him by the collar and, without even attempting an excuse, lifted him up, holding him out at arm's length. Let us chop him in a trough and sprinkle him with pepper and salt. He will make a delicious supper, said one. He looks too withered and dried, answered his comrade. We had better hang him up dry and stretch him. Why, such a shriveled little creature can be better used for making bowstrings. Now let us eat him, proposed the other. We will dry him, as I said, returned the, his companion. Will we indeed, replied the first, stealing a glance at his friend. No, as I caught him, I wish to determine what to do with him, and I am bent upon having him for supper. But I say that he shall be dried, said the first again. I say he shall not, cried the other. He shall, yelled the first, poking his friend in the ribs. Do you mean to strike me, shouted the other, furiously seizing a heavy club. Why not, roared his companion in a great rage, catching hold of a young tree and brandishing it over his head. Now the battle began. The little tailor was dropped and forgotten, while the giants used their clubs against each other with such a force that every stroke sounded as if one of the largest trees were felled to the ground. The great warrior, who slew seven with one stroke, would have run away, but became so frightened that he was utterly unable to move. And so with closed eyes and shaking limbs, he awaited the end of the struggle, thinking how foolish it was for him to leave his needle and thread for such exploits as killing dragons, serpents, and giants. At length, all was still, and the tailor ventured to open his eyes. Both giants were lying on the ground. Having knocked the clubs to pieces upon each other, they had torn trees from the ground and fought with them until branches and stems lay scattered on all sides. The little man walked around them a couple times to see if they were really dead. He touched them with his foot. Yeah. And at length he ventured to pluck one by his long beard. Then he pulled out his sword and thrust it into the breast of the dead giant. When the other one had received the same treatment, the tailor sat down in the shade, wiped his forehead, and ate the rest of his bread and butter. He now returned to the palace and told the king that he had killed both giants. The entire court was greatly surprised. But the king said, He has deserved the hundred gold pieces and he shall have them. We all clearly see, observed the stout little general, that a great and heroic spirit can dwell in a small body. They went into the forest and found the dead monsters. Look, exclaimed one of the courtiers, how they have torn trees from the ground in the fearful struggle. Wonderful, wonderful, cried everyone, looking admiringly at the little tailor, who drew himself up and looked proudly around. I should think, at length, remarked one of the king's men, that this brave man might also slay the unicorn, which works havoc beyond the river. To be sure, exclaimed the king. Do you dare engage in contest with the unicorn? Continued he, turning to the tailor. I will give you two hundred gold pieces if you can manage to kill it. Now the tailor's dreams again woke within him, and at this moment he did not remember that he had not really killed the giants. With sparkling eyes, he turned to the king, exclaiming, Your majesty, I shall kill the unicorn. The next day he was followed to the river by the whole court. The ferryman took him across the water, where he soon found himself in a forest dense, wild, and desolate. 
No sooner was he left alone than the thought entered his head to turn back and run away from the danger. But in the same moment, the unicorn burst through the bushes and came down upon him with glowing eyes, galloping wildly and with the fearful frontal horn pointing to the very place where the tailor knew his heart was. There was no time even to think, and when the animal had come within four inches of him, he fainted away and fell to the ground motionless. The monster, which had been charging fast, was, however, unable to stop. Like a fierce wind, it passed and ran its horn into the trunk of a large oak tree with such a force that it was impossible to draw it back again. The tailor suffered no injury, whatever. When he awoke from his swoon and found himself alive, the monster stood near him, kicking up the dust and leaves with its hooves and howling with pain and fury. He saw that his life was at stake, for if the unicorn succeeded in getting away, no doubt it would again turn upon him. So however hard it went with him, he must pull out his hacked sword, which he ran into the neck of the unicorn with all his might. The animal began howling like all the swine in the land of Franconia taken together. This was again too much for the heroic tailor. He fainted, but when he awoke, the animal lay dead by his side. Without stopping to examine it, he repaired to the palace with the news of his great deed. The whole city rejoiced over it. He was led through the streets in triumph, and all the church bells rang for him. A golden chain was placed around his neck by the king himself. Two hundred shining gold pieces were paid him. The queen kissed his forehead, and all the great and small poets made verse in honor of his heroism. But our friend had had enough of both fright and honor. He wished himself far from Franconia and all its giants and unicorns. When he went to bed in the evening, he swore that nothing would induce him to fight more of the frightful monsters or to dream of great deeds, for he had found that dreams were dreams and sometimes far from reality. The next morning he packed his knapsack, stuffing the belt and money together at the bottom, whereupon he went over to say goodbye to the king and queen. The king did not wish, however, to part so soon from the great hero. There is one more deed which you must accomplish before leaving us, he said. The tailor begged to be excused, but the king of Franconia possessed one remarkable quality. When he had taken something into his head, he was bent upon having his will in spite of everything. What does your majesty ask me to do? at length asked the tailor. I desire you to kill the wild boar which haunts the woodlands on the borders of my domain, said the king. If you succeed in killing this monster, three hundred gold pieces will be yours, and I promise to give you a duke's rank. When the little man heard of the borders of the land, he felt relieved and thought, If I can only manage to cross the frontiers, I care little about the boar, the money, and the duke's title, but will return home as fast as possible. He answered, however, Your Majesty's wish shall be fulfilled. I will take the boar's life. But his face lengthened a great deal when the king told him that one hundred brave knights were ready to follow him to the place and that he himself intended to go also. I am not the least afraid, concluded he, when I am near your strong arm. Although the tailor did not at all enjoy the thought of having the king and his knights watch the fight between him and the boar, he made no objection, and so they started on their journey. 
The road was covered in many places with fragments of arms and legs from the poor victims of the raging beast. "'Your Majesty,' at length said one of the knights, "'must not be exposed to the danger of meeting the boar. I propose that we stop here and let this brave man face the monster alone. He will easily kill it.' "'I agree with this friend of mine,' observed the tailor at once." The king assented, bidding his men to stop while the hero pursued his way alone. So long as he could yet be seen by the king and his men, he stepped briskly forward. But as soon as the trees concealed him from their view, he took off his shoes and walked along cautiously. Having thus pursued his way for a couple of hours and thinking himself already out of danger, he noticed a little chapel among the trees and thought that here he might pass the night undisturbed when at once a fearful creaking was heard and the boar came rushing against him as rapidly as the wind. It was immensely large, with a pair of gleaming eyes and tusks of enormous length and size. With a scream of terror, the tailor made for the chapel, reached it, and jumped from one pew to another, the boar following him closely. At length he felt the animal's hot and firing breath on the back of his neck when he saw an open window in front of him. Gathering all his force in a final jump, he skipped through the window and hastened as soon as he had reached the ground back to the entrance, the door of which he closed and bolted. When he had thus escaped the animal and locked it up safely, he returned to the king and the knights who greeted him with merry shouts. The animal was too small and unimportant for me to fight, said he. I grasped it by the neck and threw it into the chapel. Now you may amuse yourself by hunting and killing it. I only desire to receive the three hundred gold pieces and to be allowed to return home. His wish was granted at once, and with many thanks and blessings, the king of Franconia parted with the great hero. The tailor reached his native village safe and sound. One evening he was standing outside of his house thinking how glad his wife would be to see him again when he heard her voice within crying for mercy while a gruff answer followed and a sound as if someone was going to beat her. The tailor's heroism at once awoke. He pushed the door open, seized his sword, and rushed into the room where he found Mads, his wealthy neighbor, standing before the little woman threatening to beat her with his cane. He will never return home to you, shouted Mads. I will beat you until you give up every thought of him and consent to marry me. Yes, he will, said the little tailor. And here he is, a great and honored man. With his sword, I have killed two giants, a unicorn, and a wild boar, and 600 gold pieces were my reward. He looked fiercely at Mads and continued, I ought to kill you for beating my wife, you wretch, but I feel too great for such trifling deeds. Out with you, he shouted, pulling forth the rusty sword and pointing to the door. Out with you, do you hear? Mads retreated through the door in great haste, but the tailor and his little wife clasped each other in their arms. He had told her how he had accomplished these great deeds but that he was tired of leading such a hard life as a hero must necessarily lead. Therefore, he had returned home. The little tailor became a wealthy man. He had his own carriage and horses, and henceforth he sewed only for his own pleasure. The blacksmith, his devoted friend, received a liberal share of these riches which were obtained by manful deeds, and so well deserved.
Yeah, yeah, the sound effects were kind of cheesy, but I had fun putting them in. <laughs> I had fun telling the tale, too. Hey, I learned a new song the other day. It's a kid's song. I wanted to share it with you. It's Danish. It's called Seminchula, or Look at My Dress. Look at my dress. It's as red as the sun. Everything I own, it's just as red as that. And that's because I love everything that's red. And because a postal carrier is my friend. So a postal carrier in Denmark wears red. That's the color of the Danish mail. Goes something like this. So, I just thought you ought to know about this great song. Next comes a piece of music that is kind of special. In my previous podcast about Lynn Berg, who as a luthier makes Hardanger fiddles, uh, Lynn mentions that he made a couple of Hardanger quartets. Now that's two Hardanger fiddles, a Hardanger viola, and a Hardanger cello. And what makes Hardanger violins special or Hardanger string instruments special is the sympathetic strings that lie under the main strings to give the instrument more resonance. But Hardanger viola and cello are absolutely unique. No one else besides Lindbergh that I know has ever made them. The piece I'm about to play comes from the Harding Tone CD and features the quartet along with several solo Hardanger fiddle tunes played by Karen Loberg-Code. I was very curious what a Hardanger quartet would sound like. So, since such quartets are so unique, there aren't really any musical arrangements out there for them. So, David Loberg-Code composed the arrangement we'll hear of the Ulrich Polka, which draws inspiration from the Valdres area of Norway. Linda Kasperson Anderson and Karen Loberg Code are on Hardanger fiddles, Tova Leila Hansen is on the viola, and David Loberg Code plays cello. Listen carefully to the cello part. Thank you. 
That's a real foot stomper, isn't it? <laughs> Makes you want to get up and dance. Now, the liner notes from the Harding Tones CD say that the Ulrich Polka has a secret children's song hidden within it. Come again? <laughs> Did you catch it? I sure didn't. Mm, but since David Loberg Code composed this arrangement of the polka and plays cello, it made me very interested in the cello line. Let me play one particular part of the piece again, and I'll turn up the bass. Have a listen. Yeah, the cello plays da 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 da. Cool, huh? You recognize it? Do you recognize Seymin Shula? Look at my dress. If you didn't, rewind and listen to this section again. That's why I played this children's song on piano for you first, so you might know the tune. Pretty clever composing, I think. You can pick up the Harding Tones CD with lots of other examples of fiddle music, especially different kinds of springar, by emailing karen, K-A-R-I-N, at codestudiostrings, C-O-D-E, S-T-U-D-I-O, S-T-R-I-N-G-S dot com, codestudiostrings.com. And while you're emailing Karen, please also cruise over to the Nordic on Tap, that's all one word, dot com website. And along with the extras that go with each podcast episode, you'll also be invited to take our listener survey. I'd really like to find out more about what you'd like how you like the show so far, how I can make it better. And as an incentive, when you submit the survey, you'll get a link to download some really nifty Nordic on Tap screen backgrounds for mobile and desktop as a thank you for completing it. Special thanks to Seth Tufteland and Lori Ann Reinhall for being the first two to take the survey. Thank you. Our intro music is the traditional Danish tune, The New March, played by Morten Alfred Hoyrup and Ruthie Dornfeld. Both have websites and are active folk musicians. Our outgoing music was composed and performed by Daryl Jackson at daryljacksonmusic.com. Please see our early podcasts on Morton Alfred and Daryl to learn how they became musicians and what drives them to compose such excellent music. Of course, there are now extras on our Nordic on Tap website about them if you've already listened to those podcasts. The piano excerpt from Grieg's Lyrical Songs, uh, Opus 20, it's a waltz, was played by Marcus Circus. Thanks to Karin Lobert Code and the quartet for letting me play the recording from their CD. As always, we'd love to hear from you at nordicontap at gmail.com. And so, Tenestagong, this is your host, Eric Stavney, on Nordic on Tap, Viseas. With a scream of terror, the tail... With a... So however hard it went with him, he must pull his wicked sword. No. And in the meantime, you are forced to uh, overmodulate. Okay, we're turning this down a bit.
Let's try again. <laughs>